that was uh, in my heart. There rings a melody. It's hard to say. It's hard to say the title of that hymn without saying, "In my heart there rings a melody," because that's how you sing it. But every that uh, was a uh, was a favorite uh, of my mom's, and uh, and so everything everything we're doing today, all the all the music that we're singing today, is uh, really she chose it. They're among her. They're among her uh, favorites, and that's why we're we're doing them. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. I know on a Friday during the work week it it wasn't easy for some of you, so so uh, thank you for carving out the time. Um, and thank you for being here for the for the family uh, as well, and for Bernice. Uh, let's uh, let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the life of Bernice Scythe. We pray that our time together today would be a fitting um, fitting memorial for her, a uh, fitting tribute. We pray that our time together today would be a, would be a comfort to those who grieve. And Father, we thank you uh, for the reason that, it, that we can be comforted uh, at a time like this. Uh, we thank you for uh, your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died himself that we might live forever. Uh, Father, we just um, give you this time. We pray that you'd be uh, honored as well here and, uh, and glorified. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for your great love for us uh, that, uh, that can comfort us uh, even in the face of death. Uh, we we, we uh, just give ourselves to you in this time to you, asking for your blessing, your favor. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. From the first chapter of Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let us together stand and sing Onward Christian Soldiers, hymn number 731. So 
on? Okay. All right, I'm going to read Kindle soon. Bernice Rose Scythe was a woman driven by love, family, and tradition. My grandmother was a wonderful woman. Some of the smallest memories stand out in my mind. Grandma in her kitchen, which was essentially her living room, watching her little TV that sat on the counter, driving by her house and seeing that little white-gray poop of hair through the window and knowing she was sitting at her kitchen table. When I think of my childhood, Grandma is ever-present. I remember standing on a chair, hearing the hum of a mixer, tasting something delicious directly from her spoon, the smell of her sticky buns, which were delicious always, cookies, pies, and cakes, toothpick testing the center of something delicious she baked for doneness. For my first, de for my first decade, through my eyes, one of her main reasons for living was to nurture and feed people, especially her grandchildren. On a uh, side story real quick, when I was just a couple weeks ago, when I went to the uh, nursing home, she, uh, she was sleeping, and she woke up, and she, the first thing she said to me, she saw that I was there, and she said, can I interest you in a glucerna shake? <laughs> <laughs> and she raised her eyebrows, and I was like, I'm good, but she definitely likes to feed us. <laughs> um, when we were little, Grandma encouraged us to play as hard as we could. We would tromp through the woods all day, only to be drawn out by my dad's high-pitched whistle, letting us know it was time to come in for the meal Grandma had prepared. The minute we entered her house, Grandma inspected our hands. She'd send us up to wash up and re-inspect them once we returned. For whatever kid reason, we were determined to fake wash our hands. But Grandma was even more determined that we would have clean hands before sitting down to eat. She taught me that girls are able to play as hard as boys and get just as dirty in the process. But she also taught me to take pride in myself and for goodness sake, clean up before dinner. Other times, she'd be out in the backyard with us digging up worms from her worm bed. Then she'd take us to Carbide Park or Melton Lake to go fishing. Or she would go catch, go catching while Justin and I would just get busy, or would get busy getting messy as possible. Justin was better at that than I was. When we got back to the house, she'd bathe us thoroughly, cleaning out from underneath, from beneath our fingernails, behind our ears, and between our toes. She'd wrap us up in our towels, and then she'd sit on the piano. Then she'd sit on the piano bench with us standing in front of her to meticulously and lovingly part our hair exactly down the middle. It felt like it took forever for her to perfectly part our hair. For Grandma Scythe, tradition was supreme. It was her way of preserving family connections, her way of demonstrating love, and her way of reminding us who we are. Dying Easter eggs and making Christmas cookies with Grandma were elaborate events. It wasn't just her dedication to family holiday rituals. You weren't just signing up on for cookie making or Easter egg coloring. You were committed to love you were committing to love traditions. Cookies were a full on production. You'd better arrive early and expect to stay late. 
I made Christmas cookies with her every year until the year before last. Decorating the Christmas tree, too, was an important ritual. Grandma's tree was adorned with the same vintage ornaments and lights each year. She would hick each one to the tree individually, piece by piece and light by light. She used genuinely lead tinsel that she would place strand by strand between each glass bead. The painstaking care with which she decorated the Christmas tree is, an, in, is indicative of how important family traditions were to her. Decorating the house for Christmas, too, was an event. Trimming the hutch with greenery, hanging each ornament from a bow, setting up the nativity, decking the piano top, and decorating the Christmas tree. Egg dyeing was, was just as involved. I dyed, I dyed Easter eggs with my grandma every year. On one of these occasions, she taught me about egg wars. For the uninformed, an egg war is where you bash the pointy end of your egg against your opponent's egg. Whoever is holding the egg that didn't crack is the winner. There wasn't a loser. There was never a loser. We weren't allowed to use that word. <laughs> and Grandma never forgot anyone, anyone she'd ever met, anyone in my life, anyone who was important to me, family members on my other side or friends she remembered and asked about. She wanted to hear how each person was doing. Grandma lived a simple life. It didn't take much to make her happy, just a visit or a phone call. Oh, more page. A gesture that indicated that you cared for her as she did. She lived to love her family. We were everything to her. Grandma once told me I'd thank my lucky stars if I had a grandmother like me. <laughs> well, I do, and I feel very fortunate to have had a grandmother so willing to, so willing and happy to love me just as I am. Her heart was the mechanism turning the wheels of our family, rotating the axle, and from which all other spokes radiated. Radiate. She created and fostered an environment of family warmth. She made our holidays extraordinary, from dying Easter eggs to baking the best Thanksgiving meal and the woo! <laughs> we collectively exclaimed when opening Christmas gifts. Grandma was the element that made our people a family. When it came to a family, she was ferociously determined to see us. She made it happen by whatever means necessary, fussing, cajoling, or throwing a guilt trip, Grandma would do whatever it took to keep us close, and it was very effective. She had me by the heart. She was my touchstone, and my time with her kept me grounded. Grandma was an incredible, significant life force. Beyond the profound loss of this incredible woman, we grieve and end of an era, a shutting down of a life that was a portal to our childhoods. <laughs> to those early days, brimming with innocence and promise, she leaves behind a legacy of love and tradition in a lifetime of memories. She is part and particle of each one of us, buried deep in our hearts. This was her legacy.
We are her legacy. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Eric Abelquist, uh, Sandy's husband, Bernice's son-in-law. And I'm going to do a couple of things. I'm going to start with reading something that uh, Ray Flaherty sent to Sandy. It looks like a few weeks ago. And uh, Ray is a very close niece to Bernice. Uh, she lived in Florida for many years. and. I guess several years ago, moved to Switzerland where she couldn't visit as much, but she was fortunate enough to visit um, a couple of times recently. So let me read this uh, from Ray. My only consolation, perhaps, is that I was able to make those couple of, tri a couple of visits. When I was living in Florida, we'd get on the phone and talk about, I don't know what, for hours until the battery would run out. Then years later, I visit and see that she has loads of Jane Austen books, and what a surprise that was. One of my favorite reads, and when the movies are on TV, I always watch them. Last time I was there, she let me have some of them that she had already read. Within a month after I got back, I'd read them all, and then later reread a couple of them. Kind of felt like I was sharing time with her when I was reading the same things she has read. And then there was her interest in Amish stories. And again, I was a little surprised because I'd also been interested in them, too. Not only that, seeing all the puzzles she'd done, that really surprised me. About 30 years ago, I did a 3,000-piece puzzle just for the challenge of it. Now I generally restrict myself to 1,000 pieces and only do them between Christmas and New Year's as a bit of a treat to put everything else aside and relax for a couple of days. Who knew I had come from a family of puzzlers? Just rambling on with fond memories, I'm so glad that I was able to see her and spend time talking while she was still able. Sure, she had to move slowly when we went out to eat or shop, but I'm so grateful for the hours we spent together. Of course, wish it could have been more. My thoughts are with you all. Much love, Ray. Again, that's her close niece, um, Ray Flaherty. What I'd like to share with you is why Bernice is the best mother-in-law anyone could have. And I'm going to share a couple of reasons why, and I think I'll be able to convince you as well. First of all, I met Sandy and her family in 1994, and Bernice was a great mother-in-law to me because I immediately was welcomed into the family, and I was able to participate in family family gatherings, uh, which were, as uh, Alyssa read for Kendall, absolutely special. Uh, the tradition. Um, was unmistakable. I remember the first Christmas we were, I don't know, 25, 30 of us gathered around a tree and everyone was sharing gifts 
And I guess sometime before that event, someone asked Bernice, what should we get Eric? And so as the gifts started coming my way, it didn't take long for me to figure out what she had told everybody. She had gotten the idea that I like baseball caps. And so that Christmas, I think I scored four or five baseball caps. But every holiday was special. It, it really was. It was a, a, a big ordeal. And my family, we were much smaller. Um, we didn't have the big get-togethers. And so, like I said, I immediately felt welcomed into the family. Um, each of the holidays were just fantastic. Um, Christmas Eve service, we would all go over to her house and stay there, and there would be a spread of uh, sandwich meat and cheese. And it was just always special right after Christmas, even though it meant that we were going to stay up to midnight wrapping gifts, or Sandy would be up longer than midnight for sure. As was said, Bernice was all about family. Everything she did seemed to involve family. Whether it was a simple visit to our house, and I remember the times when just, just different things stick in my mind, like her laugh at my dog Magnus, who was a goofy Great Dane. It would just crack her up, the things he would do. Uh, whether it was a day trip to Dollywood, or a trip to a church picnic or a retreat. Just, uh, she loved being around family. And I remember the, the very special trips we had to Canada. We would we'd be there for a week, but she would be there for a couple of weeks. And she would come by, and as Ray said in her note, uh, she would help us with the puzzle that we were working on. And if she wasn't working on the puzzle, she was holding court at the end of the boat dock and people would go down there and, and talk to her. And I think we'd all worry, what if she fell in? What are we going to do if she falls in? But it was, it was so special, um, all the bonds that she made with us. And also, as uh, Kendall alluded, she was an absolutely fantastic cook and baker. Every meal, delicious, all the time. So the best part is, Sandy's been a really good learner. And so this is the gift that keeps on giving. And so I'm very appreciative of that. And so she has been the best mother-in-law uh, anyone could have. But most of all for me, she treated me and loved me as her own son. And for that, um, she will always be the best mother-in-law I could ever have. And we will all miss you very much.
You know, at, uh, at some funerals, the officiant, to which I guess that's what I, my role is today, uh, doesn't even know the deceased. I'm sure you've been to funerals like that where, the, where the, uh, whoever's conducting the ceremony has to beforehand talk to some of the family members and try to get a sense of their personality and who they were in their life so that, they'll, so that the one conducting the ceremony will be able to personalize uh, his remarks at least a little bit. Uh, that is not the case here today because I am pretty sure that I have known Bernice Scythe longer than anyone here today. Uh, I mentioned Ray, uh, my cousin, our cousin, and, um, and there's another cousin who, who uh, if they were here, they would have me beat. But I think those would be the only two living persons anywhere in the world who uh, did know Bernice longer than I did. In point of fact, I can't even remember the first time I met her. <laughs> of course, that's because hers was the first face I ever saw, the first voice I ever heard. Hers were the first arms that ever held me. And there are others here for whom that's the case as well. It's just that I have a few years on them as the firstborn. Uh, my brothers and sisters can scarcely imagine how much she taught us. She taught us about resisting peer pressure when she said, if everyone jumped off a cliff, would you do it too? I can't tell you how many times I heard that. She taught us about the importance of life choices when she said, if you keep making that face, it's going to stick that way and you'll be sorry then. And of course, by the time you're my age, the face you've been making is the one you're stuck with. <laughs> and in some cases, you are sorry. She taught us about cause and effect when she said, I'll give you something to cry about. She taught us about justice when she said, I hope you grow up and have kids just like you. I heard that a few times, too. She taught us about compassion when she said, I feel sorry for whoever marries you. <laughs> she, she never did, you know, with all those kind of cliche things, uh, she never did warn us not to cry over spilled milk because she was the one who cried over spilled milk. Uh, over the years, gallons and gallons of it when we were growing up. I, you know, I think as I, as I hear, you know, the second generation, it's a little different. It's a little different. And, and, uh, and she cried a lot over spilled milk. I, she had a theory about how spilled milk splashed, each drop uh, spreading out into droplets, and each of those droplets, even smaller droplets, and it would just go like that until, you know, like the Big Bang or something, it would just go until every, every square inch of the kitchen floor was, would, was covered with milk and it would be sticky unless the whole floor was washed. Heard that speech a few times. Now, the Lord works in mysterious ways and maybe all that spilled milk prepared her for the time our brother spilled 
I, in my mind, it's a two-gallon jar, but it may have been a gallon or something, but it's a great big jar of honey that somehow managed to run down the counter and over the top of the, over the cabinet where the drawers were, and down in the drawers and onto the floor. And it never has been clear to me how in the world could that happen? I mean, he was the only one there. And how could that happen? Because it just seems... Uh, it just seems to me that honey would spill slow. It would go really slow. But but somehow it did happen, and you know, and that two-gallon jar of honey did, you know, turned out to be not such a bargain after all. In other words, she did all of the mom stuff, all of the mom stuff for me and my brothers and sisters. Our, our dads did the providing, uh, to be sure, uh, but she did, she did the raising. She really did. Uh, she did the raising. In, a, in a, kind of in a more serious vein, later in life, she taught us that one-fourth, at least taught me, I know this, one-fourth of your monthly income is, is where you can afford to live. That's how much you can afford to pay for housing. Uh, she taught us and taught me absolutely that people do what they want to do and they do it all the time, which has been extremely, and I believe that to the bottom of my soul. I, it's in me. People do what they want to do and they do it all the time, and it has helped me both as a pastor who's trying to influence others without being too frustrated <laughs> And also as a human being prone to making excuses for myself, telling myself, oh, I would do this if, uh, even believing those excuses, it reminds me that, no, no, people do what they want to do and they do it all the time. If you wanted to, really, you'd do it. That came from her. She taught me how to draw a line in seeking to please people. When she would say, it really after a long time, it would take a long time to get here, but she would say, well, the shoes they got mad in, they can get glad in. And, and it's, it's hard to realize how, uh, how ethnic she was in background. Um, Polish and Czech and other Eastern European, it's... and. Uh, it's hard to realize that. But, she's, but think of this. She was born in 1929 to Leopold Mismus and Hedwig Sakevich. Uh, later, Hedwig Sakevich later Americanized to Edna Savage. And that's what we know her as, Edna Savage. But she Americanized both her name, you know, first name and her last name. Uh, her father died when she and her older sister were young. And so they were left to finish out the Great Depression uh, as daughters of a single mother. And think of that, she was born in 1929, you know, 29 to 39, the Depression. Uh, it's easy to forget how tough a start that must have been, but they, were, but they were poor enough to know they were poor. You know, I, we've, I've known other people that went through the Depression, but some of them, they were poor, but everyone else was poor like then, so they didn't know they were poor, but... But uh, Edna and her two daughters, they, they, were, they knew. They knew because they were the poor of the poor. 
Nevertheless, she taught her children not to be geitzik. If I recall, I haven't heard that in a long time, but I heard it was cheap. And not to be peschuk, which is kind of to play the baby and the victim. She made uh, pierogi sometimes just to, you know, part of the legacy. Part of the legacy, that's what that was about. Um, one time, my mom's older sister, our Auntie Lee, she took me, I, w- I was, uh, oh, 20, 20, 21, and uh, she, she took me to a Polish restaurant. You know, we're, the family is living here in Tennessee, but uh, my, my aunt took me to a Polish restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio, to introduce me to authentic Polish food and pierogies. And it's something, you know, learn, get some of your heritage. This is where you're from. And I, I said, yeah, yeah, mom makes pierogies at home. And she said, she makes them. She makes them? And uh, I said, yeah, they're good. And her sister, her older sister, she said, I can't remember what she said exactly, but it was something like, <laughs> shaking her fist. Growing up, we were, we were Christians in the sense that we were Americans. So we must be Christians by default. And we definitely weren't anything else, you know. And it, and it really was that kind of traditional connection, such as it was. As I remember, as I remember growing up, uh, you know, when all of it, when me and my siblings were all still at home, uh, every so often, mom would get on a tear about how we had to start going to church, and we would fall into a church-going habit for a while, for a few to several months at a time, and then we would fall out of it again, fall out of the habit of of going for more than a few or more than several months at a time. And after I became a Christian in 1974, I was 22 years old, we, have, we had lots of discussions about Christian faith and the, and the gospel. And see, I was describing myself as having become a Christian as if I hadn't been one up to that point, uh, which I wasn't, by the way. Um, born in the USA notwithstanding I wasn't and and that was that was something in those years she had trouble wrapping her mind around that I that I wasn't a Christian before but had become one and that Christian faith was not something that could be inherited that something that it was something that couldn't really rest you know on the on the mere tradition it couldn't it couldn't rest on that but that it required a personal and individual response and embrace and thankfully you know i i had i had the bible at least in my opinion on my side and we had the now tradition we had the giant bible the giant red bible that would sit on the dough box at Christmas time, but which was, you know, which was, of course, it was for traditional, decorative, kind of ritualistic purposes. But then in our conversations, we actually, we started actually consulting the Bible, not the big red one, <laughs> but another one, another one easier to handle that said the same thing. But we, we were reading things like, but as many as received him, Jesus is the him, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And, and this one, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, 
yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus says, do you believe this? And they offer, the offer of eternal life through faith in Christ is for everyone, but it's for each one. It's for each one to accept or reject, to receive or refuse. Well, I, I, think, I, I, I think I pretty much won the point because it was my privilege to baptize her about 20 or 25 years ago. I, don't, I, I don't, can't remember when it was exactly, but baptize her with the very clear understanding on in her part that in being baptized she was expressing a personal and individual trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus for her salvation from sin and death which in her case was no small decision on her part because of the horror of coming out of the water at, at the at Watts Bar Lake at the, at the Richards house where we did our baptisms for so many years. The horror of coming out of the water with her clothes clinging to her and everyone there being able to see her size and shape. And this was a... So if she was willing to do that, it was serious. <laughs> and it was real. And like everyone, like everyone... She wanted to live. Uh, you know, you know what they say: every everybody wants to go to heaven, but not today. And the thing that bothered her most about dying uh, was the aloneness of it all. No matter the circumstances, no matter how it happens, it's dying is something that is done alone. You know, in, in, inside yourself. You know, you, you step off from this life into eternity. It's, it's a solitary act, and nothing can be more personal, uh, more individual than that. And as a Christian, uh, she could take a real hope in a passage like the 23rd Psalm. It's printed on some of the memorial cards. I, we won't read it now, but, it, but I'm just saying that you can look at it if you picked up one of those cards. But it's how personal, how individual it is. The Lord is my shepherd. My shepherd. It's not our. It is our. But the, the, what's, it, what's it talk? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And the fourth verse, even though, which goes to her, you know, discomfort <laughs> with this aloneness of dying. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. So if the Lord is your shepherd, you, you do not walk through the valley of the shadow of death completely alone. Your good shepherd is there. And there's a, there's a, a biblical passage that mom specifically took more comfort in to overcome her anxieties about death. And that, that is the words and promise of Jesus in John 14. Let me read them to you. Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself 
that where I am, there you may be also. Here's what was so comforting to, to mom about that passage. And we talked about this. It was the idea that Jesus said to his own, it's that in the, in the third verse there, to those who believe him, I will come and receive you to myself. I will come and receive you to myself. And it was the idea, and this is the image, this is the image, that when you let go of the last hand you hold on this side, that Jesus is there to take your hand on the other side. And that was a comfort to her. And as it is to all who believe. In her last weeks, which were hard, uh, which were frustrating, uh, she said to me at one point, I need to go. I said, what do you mean? She said, I need to die, but I don't know how. I said, the Lord will, I said, you don't have to know how. The Lord will come for you when it's time. And if you believe as she believed, her comfort that the Lord would come for her uh, can be a comfort today in your grief that the Lord has come for her and received her to himself. The Bible says we do not grieve as do those who have no hope. That does not mean, as some may think it means, it does not mean that we do not grieve at all. Even Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. It means we do not grieve without hope. Or rather, we, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Rather, we, we grieve as those who have hope. Because Christ is the Savior of all who will have him, we have hope that we will see our mother, our grandmother, our relative, our, our friend again, and, uh, and see, and uh, touch again, and uh, talk to again, uh, less the ravages of sin and death, so that... We will exult when that day comes. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? And apart from that, there is no reason to think that death's victory is not forever and final or that there's any kind of soothing salve for death's sting that you feel in your heart right now. Uh, some will tell you that uh, death is just a natural part of life that we have to accept. That's not what she believes, believed and believes as a Christian. And, and I'll say this too. If you loved my mom, and if you saw her at any point in these past few weeks, I don't think your heart would let you say this is a natural thing that we just have to accept. I think your heart, if you love her and if you saw her, your heart tells you that death is an evil and an enemy, a robber and a thief 
that takes away the good things that God has given. But Jesus said to her, read the passage again. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, will say today, though she die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus said. Several years ago, I had a dream about my mom's dying. Even now, I can see the room in my dream, a hospital room, and a hospital room positioned kind of what I think is probably the north side of Methodist Medical Center. I kind of see which side of the building it's on. I can see the position of the bed, and I, I can even see that terrible turquoise recliner that, uh, that, you, that you have to stay on if you stay all night. And in my dream, she had just died, and there were some family members, there were some of you there, and some of you were quite distraught. And I have to tell you this as well, a few months ago when mom was at Methodist Medical Center, as she was in a room on that, she was there in that on that side of the building, and almost none of the rooms are on that side of the building where it was in my dream. Most of them are on the, on the sides, but she was kind of at the end of the building where you look out the window onto Tennessee Avenue. And I thought, oh, uh-oh, you know, is this <laughs> prophetic? Now, now, she died the um, day before yesterday at home in her own room. But, but in my dream, although her body was in the bed, she was also, there was two of her in the dream, she was also standing there among the family members saying, uh, it's okay, it's okay, it's all right, everything is fine. This kind of goes to her, you know, her discomfort with the aloneness of dying. Uh, don't be sad. And if she could be right here, right now, knowing what she now knows, having experienced what she's now experienced, having been received in, on, into that other side by the loving hand of Jesus himself. That is what she'd say. It's okay. It's all right. Everything is fine with me. She might say also, come be with me again someday Jesus is the resurrection and the life whoever believes in him though he die yet shall he live and everyone who believes and believes in him shall never die do you believe this as Bernice as did Bernice Rose Scythe enjoying a new, uh, let's say, level of newness of life right now today on her 88th birthday. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for the life of Bernice Scythe, dear mother, grandmother, 
mother-in-law, relative, friend, above all, believer in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Thank you for the comfort given her and to the grieving, knowing that she is with you according to your promise and will be restored to us one day. Thank you for the gospel, the good news by which Bernice Scythe was saved. Extend your grace again today to the heart and life of any here who have yet to embrace the eternal life you freely offer so that they too may live, though they die and never die. Give grace to believe, grace to trust. Be merciful to them as you were to our mother, grandmother, relative, friend, dear one. Thank you for the peace that passes understanding and the hope that is ours because Christ is ours. Give them generously all the days until we are united, we pray, in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Bernice loved the way, the style that Teresa played the piano. We're going to stand and we're going to together sing I'll Fly Away and we're going to sing it in the style that Bernice loved so much. Let's together stand. Missed after the benediction, I, I believe Kelly's going to come forward and lead us out, and lead, lead the family out, and then you'll you'll be dismissed. Uh, we'll we're 
proceeding uh, from here to Oak Ridge Memorial Park uh, for a very brief, you know, um, graveside uh, service just to see see mom's remains to their resting place. Um, and you're welcome. A anyone who would like to come to that is welcome to do that. But but if not, we th thank you so much for being here. I want to read a, a benediction that just seems appropriate for today uh, from Hebrews chapter 13, which says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever.